If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we continue our study out of the book of 1 Corinthians and as we in particular continue to look at Uh, sanctification and our transformation. Father, we ask that you will help us to continue to evaluate our lives and the way we live uh, through through the word, and and that, Father, we will be able to make a a good, honest assessment of where we are as Christians. Father, we ask that you would grant us understanding that we may continue to grow in our joy and our love for you as well as our gratitude. Father, we thank you again for giving to us your word, preserving it to ensure that we would each have a copy of it, that we may be able to read it, and that we may be able to understand it. That, Father, we may know you or know ourselves better. As always, we thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 8. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there was one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with the idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Several weeks ago, when we started to work our way through this, I said that we were kind of taking a small little caveat, uh, and the idea was to deal with the issue of sanctification for several different reasons, but the main one being this, that when you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, One of the difficulties that they're having that Paul is seeking to address is there was this, uh, they were evaluating their their lives as believers. I guess you could even say they're evaluating their spirituality in a very wrong way. Uh, They were looking at those who possessed certain spiritual gifts and those who didn't possess certain spiritual gifts and thinking that those who had certain gifts were better than the others. That they were maybe more spiritual, maybe even closer to God. I think the same kind of thing is going on here as he deals with this issue of food that's being, you know, whether you can eat food that's been formally offered to idols. The idea here is that by keeping certain rules or by not keeping certain rules, individuals view themselves as being better than others. They're evaluating someone else's spiritual, I guess, condition, or maybe that's not the right word. They're evaluating, uh, I guess, their their degree of, of... spiritual maturity, uh, maybe their, even their usefulness to the church based on certain decisions they made. There was a real lack of understanding of sanctification and that led to a, a lack of a desire to understand each other and to go a little deeper than just some of the surface things that he is dealing with. And so we began to look at, look at the issue of sanctification and, and again the idea is, is that uh, uh, we, we looked at the fact that all of us are sanctified. We are, you know, our position is that we are sanctified because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
And even though oftentimes in the past we've used the term progressive sanctification, uh, that maybe instead of talking about progressive sanctification, we, could just, we should speak of our transformation. The idea being that you and I are being transformed on a regular basis so that our lives will match the truth about us, that we are what? Sanctified, that we've been set apart by God for God, and that we need to be very concerned about our transformation as believers, and that we need to understand how that works and, and how that goes on in our life, how it is that God's going to uh, enable each of us to become more like his son, Jesus Christ. So we've spent the last couple of weeks looking at different, in some cases, heresy, a false teaching that's come along uh, that has uh, tried to lure people in with this promise that if you do certain things a certain way, if you understand the secret that they have to the Christian life, that you then can become more spiritual, or you can become closer to God, or you can have greater joy, or some combination of these things. And we looked at each of them and, and saw that each of them were in, in great error. And we're going to look at a little more of that today. Some of the, there's an overlap in some of it. But the reason why this is important, because this kind of thing continues on even to this day. This is not an over and done issue where uh, there's no one out there within Christianity who is trying to lure people in to either follow them or to maybe make a quick buck uh, through false teaching. And it also affects us in this way. That if we don't have a proper understanding of the relationship that we have with Christ, if we don't have a good understanding of our position in Christ, where we stand, it can lead us to uh, be more prone to following after false teachers. It can lead us to, be, to having a wrong evaluation of what God is doing in our life or what God is doing in the circumstances in our life. And it can lead us to either great sadness or disappointment, uh, even despair, because we don't really recognize What's going on? It can lead us to become insecure as believers. And God doesn't want us to be insecure as believers. He wants us to know that we've been adopted by him and that we belong to him and that we are, in that sense, eternally secure and that that's not going to be broken. So what I want to cover this morning is, number one, there is this teaching that an individual can become sanctified or they can become really sanctified through the breaking of curses. The idea is that uh, if you are struggling with certain sins in your life or if you are struggling with certain emotions, like you just can't shake depression or you just can't shake anxiety, whatever the case may happen to be, that the source of those things or the sinful behaviors or the cause of those things are curses from the past that need to be broken. And that when those curses are broken as a Christian, you would then gain victory and you will have a sense of well-being. Uh, there's really literally millions of books that have been sold purporting to reveal the secret to identifying and breaking curses. Uh, there is one book that's called From Curses to Blessings, Removing Generational Curses. Uh, I can just save you the time and money. Don't buy it. It's garbage. Um, there's another one called The Six Steps to Breaking a Generational Curse. And of course, you know, you buy this course you send this individual money, they give you the secrets to breaking uh, some curse that's been handed down, uh, going back to your great-great-grandparents perhaps, and if you break that curse, then you'll be free from whatever it is that's bothering you. Uh, there is a counseling center, which is called Above and Beyond Counseling Center. And so this is from their website. This is what it says. We have ministered deliverance prayer to thousands of people 
saved and washed in the blood of Christ, yet who still had curses operating in their life. How do we know that? During the course of our deliverance ministry, we methodically break word curses over people, cancel the assignments of demonic spirits, and often see manifestations as these curses are broken and the spirits leave. So that's how you know. You you pray for the individual and you can watch the demons run away and that's how you know they've been delivered. Uh, Curses being broken for us, it's much like salvation and even our healing. Provision for it has been completed by Christ on the cross. However, this work must be appropriated by the hearer. Salvation is available for all, but not all are saved. Similarly, for healing, we must appropriate and declare the completed work of Christ for healing. There are demonic spirits associated with curses to carry out the curse. The reality is that anyone can curse you, but the curse needs an open door or an entry point for the spirit to enter you and work in your life. The misconception that Christians cannot be cursed is one of a long list of mistaken beliefs uh, people hold that can lead to their, ultim- to their untimely demise. Hosea 4.6 tells us that God's people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, and this is certainly one of those areas where ignorance is not bliss. How do you know if you're operating under a curse? Is there an extensive family history of affliction in your bloodline that seems to be at work in you as well? Do you remember specific and negative words spoken over you that seemed to be coming true? These are indicators, and you would be well advised to seek competent help from someone knowledgeable about curses. And of course, they're the ones that are knowledgeable. There's another website. Just think about these titles of these articles. The Eight Best Prayers for Breaking Generational Curses. If you you buy that book, then they'll give you this other book for free. The 125 Most Powerful Prayers Ever. So I guess that means that if you haven't uttered one of those 125 prayers, your prayers are weak. Then there's another one called Redeeming Your Bloodline. Sounds like a book series for vampires, but anyway. Uh, There's one called Breaking Generational Curses, Overcoming the Legacy of Sin in Your Family. Breaking Generational Curses, Overcoming the Legacy of Sin in Your Family by Marilyn Hickey. The Breaking of Curses, Spiritual Warfare, Volume 5. Breaking Generational Curses and Pulling Down Strongholds. Unlocking the Codes, Cleansing Your Bloodline and Breaking Generational Curses. And prayers that break curses and spells and release favors and breakthroughs. And we could go on with many other articles and books and websites that uh, purport to help you in these areas. Many individuals assume that various symptoms prove the presence of spiritual curses. So if you say that you're depressed and you can't figure out why, they'll say that's proof that there's a curse on your family somewhere and they need to find the right words, maybe identify the demon. Uh, then through certain kinds of prayers, they can relieve you of the problem. And then the demon will leave and you'll be free. People are often desperate for a spiritual expert who can break the curse that causes their symptoms, hoping for emotional and spiritual well-being as the result. Sometimes we fail to recognize that there are individuals, maybe there are many, who can become quite desperate. They, they've been, maybe they've been given a lot of bad advice, maybe given a lot of bad information, maybe not given any good information, but as a result of that, uh, they're maybe ignorant of what the Word of God says. That's often the case. And so as a result, they're really struggling with certain things in their life, and it's beginning to wear them down. 
And pretty soon they begin, they become desperate. There's a feeling of being desperate. And so they're looking. And so someone who comes along who sounds confident and sounds like they have the secret and it's something they haven't heard before, they'll go and they'll pay money. It's no different than an individual who's trying to find a cure for their child who, uh, who may have some kind of incurable disease or has, who's crippled. And yet there's individuals who say they can heal them. And they'll give money. They'll do everything because they're desperate to help their child because they can see how uh, much their child is suffering. And so the same thing happens to individuals who are suffering you know, emotionally or those who are suffering mentally or those who are suffering spiritually or some combination. And so these individuals are out there praying on them uh, is really what it amounts to. We need to uh, recognize this. This is not unique with me. I can't remember who said this. I've seen it in several places. But basically we need to remember this. Breaking curses is, is akin to occultism. This is just almost, it's almost as if you're practicing a Christianized form of occultism. Now, none of us would want to do that purposely, but that's where this ends up being. Because you have people who claim that words of knowledge will identify causes and make it possible to break a curse using the right words. So what that ends up meaning is this, is that certain incantations and occultic knowledge are dressed up as the wisdom of God and prayer to hide the obvious paganism behind the teachings. Because what they're teaching is, is with a certain kind of prayer, certain, certain words that have to be used, certain demons that have to be identified, and those kinds of things. Finding out which ancestor was the cause of a spiritual curse is a very common reason why Christians seek hidden knowledge. And if you think about it, the one who's trying to, I, I would say, rip you off, that's a, that's a safe area to venture into. How are you going to prove them wrong? So your great-great-uncle whoever, Uncle Andy, you know, went to, went to Japan, and he brought back a statue of Buddha. And so this individual says, idol worship was in your family. Your uncle may have bought that idol, that, that statue or that idol for all kinds of reasons. He's not worshiping it. And yet they're going to, you know, create this, fabricate this story that the problems you're having now go back to his poor decision. Remember that Christian sanctification is not a subset of pagan occultism. It is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Holiness is a gift of God through Christ. It is not the result of manipulating the hidden world of curses and spirits. Then along with that, obviously comes this one, which is the deliverance that you can become sanctified through just the deliverance of outright demonic activity in your life. So it's not necessarily curses, but there's demons in your life. And this still holds uh, a lot of water in a lot of different circles. It is primarily in charismatic circles uh, that they have these services where people can be delivered of demons. But nonetheless, many individuals are susceptible to this. The idea is, is that basically there are demonic influences in your life, and that is the cause of the sin problems in your life. Uh, so you have the, you know, some, one book even said this, that if you overeat, you have, this, you have the demon of gluttony. Now, I don't know how many demons of gluttony there are, but maybe there's quite a few. Uh, or that if you can't get rid of smoking, it's the demon of smoking and all these types of things that are out there. So those who teach deliverance claim to have, again, secret knowledge about the ways that demons supposedly can be used against other demons. Uh, they teach that your soul is tied to these demons because of certain sexual sins in your past or other things that you've done where you open the door to present demonic activity to various, and, and, then they, and then of course they tie this to various past memories and the influences of maybe past occultic activity in your life. 
The idea was is that when you were 16, you were playing with your friends with the Ouija board. And as a result of that, you've had this problem ever since because of this demon uh, that is there. There's endless possibilities as to the cause or the activities of, of all these demons. At least that's what they teach. And so they follow a very common pagan belief that deliverance teachers claim that one must learn the names of the demons in order to have power over them and to make them leave. God, again, delivers those who turn to Christ out of Satan's domain of darkness and places them under the authority of Christ, period. All who know Christ have access to the throne of grace. So rather than to determine, rather than determine what is or is not from Satan or demons, we can and we should take all of our needs directly to God through Christ. There is no demon that can stop that from happening. We should, not inter- we should not interact directly with spirits that have been in their realm for thousands of years. I believe demons are real, and you just don't engage them. There's a reason for that. Christ has authority over all spirits and always has our benefit in terms of being conformed to his image in his mind. In other words, if you are a Christian, you go to God about this. If you are not, turn to God in Christ through the gospel. We are sanctified through a relationship with Christ and his ordained means, not by interacting with wicked spirits who love attention and will continually seek to deceive us. But for some reason, people are not interested in that answer. They want to know more about demons so they can get the demons to leave them alone or, do, or have these demons do what they tell them to do. Remember that even when Jesus gave his disciples the power over demons to demonstrate that the way out was through the Messiah, who has all power, he told them to not rejoice in power over demons, but that their names were enrolled in heaven. You find that in Luke 10. If our sins are forgiven, then Satan has already lost the battle. Sanctification is grounded in our status in Christ, not in our ability to manipulate the world of spirits. And then this last one. This is said in a lot of different ways, but the idea basically is this, is that if you can process your past correctly, then you will be properly sanctified or completely sanctified. Basically, what this category is, it's very general. It covers any teaching that claims to provide help based on what happened before we came to Christ. Sometimes it's called healing memories. There's a lot of Christian books or uh, uh, churches used to have supposed Bible studies on how to have your memories healed. There are a lot of versions of this and there's more being invented every day because people assume that whatever's wrong with them is caused by something in their past. As you've heard me say before, there are many influences in our lives and our past definitely influences us. But your past never causes you and me to do anything. We need to remember that. Your past never causes you to do anything. It does influence you. It may make certain things more difficult. But we can never blame any present sin we are involved in on the past. Who does God hold responsible when we sin? Us. There's not a special category For those who sin because they came from an abusive home, it's a sad thing that they came from an abusive home. We have compassion on those who came from from an abusive home. But that abusive home does not cause them to sin in any particular way. We sin the way we sin because we want to. Now that goes really contrary to everything that's out there in the world. 
You even have Christians who say that that is unloving and unkind. That somehow you just don't understand. Or that I just don't understand. And if I really understood the trauma they went through, then I wouldn't be so hard. What have I said that was hard? All I've said is that they're responsible for their sin. That used to be a common thing. And now we've gotten to this age where we want to blame everyone else for everything else that's going on and not take full responsibility for what we do wrong. We need to take full responsibility. That's, that's, that's how God wants us to live our lives. So yes, it's tragic that these things have happened. Yes, God can heal. Yes, there will be scars. Yes, there will be consequences. Yes, there will be things that will be more difficult for some people than others. But Christ has delivered and will be delivering us from all of those things. Either we believe that is true or you will be stuck and caught up in a perpetual cycle of needing some kind of psychotherapy for the rest of your life. Whether it's official psychotherapy or some other form of it. Meaning you're just talking to one friend after another, but this, whatever these issues are just never, ever, ever seem to go away. You never, ever seem to have any triumph or victory over anything. And as a result of this teaching that has crept into the church, that the church sometimes continues to water and fertilize, which goes contrary to what the Word of God has to say. There are other theories that our subconscious mind uh, or maybe something from Carl Jung's theory of the unconscious that is linked to a larger cosmic consciousness that have been Christianized. And so people will say that first memory events are the key to what might be wrong with different Christians. First memory events are the things that you, you know, I remember something when I was three. So that's my first memory and that event and that's why I'm this way. It's not why you're that way. A great deal of the, what we call talk therapy, which that term by itself is not necessarily bad. It's the presuppositions of the one you're talking to. But a great deal of the popular talk therapy is based on the idea that the past is the key to your present and for the believer to your present sanctification. And so what we have here is the integration of secular psychology in the church ministry. And it has done a great deal of harm to a lot of people. And that's why we need to get back to understanding the Word of God and what it says. We are not called to process the past. We're actually called by God to leave it behind. I don't think that God makes mistakes. I don't think that God is in heaven is, is really messed up when he says you just need to forget what's behind you. He's not saying it wasn't important. He's not saying that it didn't cause hurt or pain. He's not saying that. What he's saying is stop living it over and over in your mind. Stop living it over and over in your, in your day. Leave it behind and move forward. Haven't you ever sometimes thought this about certain other people? When are they going to get over it? Right? Now, usually it's something that we think is smaller. You know, it may kind of be a major thing, but we, we're thinking it's not that major. So we're thinking, when are they going to get over it? They just need to get over that and move on with their life because we can see how it's holding them back. Well, that actually is a form of the truth of what we have here in the Scripture, except God says this about everything to the believer. Remember, the believer is the only one who can do this. We've been empowered by the Spirit. I know who I am in Christ, and as a result of that, I'm able to move forward and leave these things behind. Again, we are not called to process the past, but to leave it behind as we serve Christ by His grace and power. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. Brethren, 
I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it, which is perfection. We mentioned in verse 12. Yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul here tells his readers to use this as an example for us. Our status in Christ and his promises for the future are the key to our sanctification, not what happened in your past. J. Adams says this, Processing the past is utter foolishness unless it involves making reparations, when possible, to people we have robbed or harmed. We need to look forward and not backwards. All of us, just so you know, every single person here has come from a dysfunctional family. Because I know that's the big thing. I've talked to many people that say, well, yeah, I know, Bob, this is easy for you, but I, was, I, I grew up in a dysfunctional family. So this is what I do now. I go, you did? Yeah. I said, it's amazing. I did too. And they don't know what to say. And I tell them, I say, you know, I said, I, as a little boy, I just can never remember my dad ever saying the words, I love you. And they go, whoa. I go, he says it all the time now. I says, and I never doubted my father's love for me, never once. Was never psychologically damaged by that. I'm okay. But whatever damage may have been done was healed by Christ because I'm a Christian. And we can move on from there. And someone says, well, I, 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 I'm a Christian too. I said, oh. I said, you sound like you, like you belong to the group of Freudians that are walking around. You know, they're reliving their past. But too often, that's what happens is, is we keep wanting to go to the past. And I do think that, at least in part, because I don't know all of it, it doesn't really matter, but at least in part, what we are often trying to do is find an excuse for why we are the way we are. Period. I don't want to be held responsible for everything that I am. I, I, want, I want you to take it easy on me a little bit. I want to find some excuse to justify whether it's a sinful thought, a sinful action, a, a, a sinful grudge, whatever it happens to be. And it may be really small, but that's what we're trying to do. The Bible does not propose processing the past in order to be more like Christ. It's just not in the Bible. And I'm convinced. You now I'm one of those guys when I approach the Bible, uh, I'm convinced that God knows everything past, present, and future perfectly. And when he gave us his word to live by, if you and I dealing with the past was in any way held any importance in you and I becoming like Christ, it would be in here. Now, there are some ways of processing the past. He tells us to do things like to forgive. He tells us to, you know, go and apologize and seek the forgiveness of those that you've harmed in the past. And make reparations, if that's possible. That's how we deal with the past. But other than that, there's not a whole lot of mental anguish that's going on concerning it. We die to the old self. We live by faith as new creatures in Christ. We remember what happened and what is good, because it remi- and that is good because it reminds us of the glorious work of grace that God did when he delivered us from it. You and I can get to a point that you can remember What's happened to you in the past that was traumatic and you will no longer have to relive all of the emotions. You'll be able to praise the Lord for delivering you from that. It is, there does not have to be that mental anguish. That is not something that's set aside only for those who are mentally strong. That is not only set aside for those who have absolute control of their emotions. 
That is for all those who are believers in Jesus Christ. We sometimes, like the world, have lowered our expectations of what we are able to do and accomplish as people, as those who are created in the image of God. God knows us better than anyone else. He's created us. And he's given all of us his word. And there's this expectation that all of us will grow in righteousness. That we will continue to be transformed into the likeness of Christ because we have been justified and sanctified by him. Just like when Israel remembered that they were slaves in Egypt. So they could understand the significance of God's redemption. We to remember that, that Christ's blood was shed so that our sins would be passed over. We were wicked sinners, but God is a great Savior who rescued us from bondage. I don't know when it happened, but there was a time when the gospel was given on a consistent manner and the consistent declaration of the gospel was that because of your sin, you can be forgiven and delivered from the punishment to come and be saved for Christ. And somewhere it changed to where you have such a bad life, Christ can deliver you from all the pain and misery in your life and you can be saved. But what about their sin? Yes, those things that happened to them were horrible, absolutely. And they experience a great deal of pain. But they're not sinless. Remember, it is not you being a victim of abuse is not what separated you from God. It was our sin. There's some horrific tragedies that have taken place. Things that are so bad that would bring tears to your eyes and cause you to be emotionally upset when you hear about the kinds of things that happen to people. And we should be moved with compassion, absolutely. But those individuals still need a Savior. They need Christ, and Christ will deliver them from all of that pain, but not all the while they're acknowledging that they have no sin. It may not be their fault that they were abused or anything like that, but they have still sinned and rebelled against God. We have to find ways to try to help explain that. We don't want to be cruel and mean about that. But we never want to disguise or hide the truth from them. We need to come to terms with what the Bible says. And stop trying to come to terms with what psychology says. And always trying to find a way to fit in with psychology. What we need to do is take what the world says and fit it into what the scripture says. And whatever doesn't fit, you throw it away. These experiences and processes devised by popular evangelicalism uh, in the last several centuries is really not surprising that the result of those things is despair for many people. As secular psychology, as a lot of these, uh, uh, the spirit of our age continues to creep in, what we have is more and more believers who are stuck in pain and misery, who are unable to move forward in victory as Christians. Who, are, who, who either don't know or have not been able to acknowledge uh, that, that they are sanctified by Christ, that they belong to him, that they've been adopted by him, that he has forgiven them and delivered them from the power of sin. And that that means everything to them. The Bible says that as believers, that believers are sanctified, and consequently, uh, I know many of you have known this, we are called saints. We don't always act like saints, but we are saints. You don't, have to be, you don't have to wait to be dead for 50 years and then have someone prove that you acted to two miracles to be declared to be a saint. You are a saint, according to God. You've been adopted by God, therefore you've been sanctified. You are, you are holy, you've been set apart by God. There is a process of transformation that will result in glorification and its outcome is certain for those who belong to Jesus Christ. 
Romans 8.28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. In logic, this is called a chain argument, which means that the descriptions that are in these verses here are true for everyone who's in this group. Everyone who's a believer is in this group. No matter what your past, God causes all things to work out for your good. He doesn't say all those things are good, but he will cause all those things to work together for your good. And so much so that even when he speaks of your glorification, it's written in the past tense because it's going to happen. There was not some endless process with an uncertain outcome of maybe you'll be sanctified and maybe you won't. Hebrews chapter 10, 14 says, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That would be those of us who are believers. Again, the hundreds of books written to promote various secrets to the victorious life, the deeper life, the higher life, the surrendered life, the truly spiritual life, and so forth, always propose a process or a secondary experience that is lacking for ordinary Christians. In fact, I've even heard someone say, you know, there is this, it may still be going on, I don't know, but there's a, a charismatic church down in Brownsville, Florida, uh, where there's all these weird experiences. They say it's the moving of the Spirit of God, and so people are rolling on the ground laughing, and people are barking like dogs, and all this kind of stuff in this church service, and they're saying it's the movement of God and whatnot. And I was talking to this one lady, her husband was a jail chaplain, She'd been a believer for for 20, 30 years. She expressed an interest to want to go down there. And I said, why would you want to do that? And she said, all I know is this. If God has something for me, I want to go get it. And I said, you do know that God is omnipresent. If there's something God wants you to have, you can get it right here. They live in Tennessee, by the way, not Kentucky. That's for you, Tim. Uh, (laughs) But the bottom line, there are people who think that way. For whatever, for whatever it is they think is lacking, when they hear about these things that people are giving these glowing reports about, and people even may say, well, you know, I'm not into the barking dogs or whatever, but all I know is when I went, I felt something powerful. And we want that, as if somehow whatever we have now is not enough. It's because we've been influenced by the world. In contrast, the Bible emphasize, emphasizes to us what God has done once for all. And assures believers that he will complete the work he started. The ground for this assurance is the finished work of Christ. So here's the simple truth. Sanctification is true for all who are born of God. The process, the experiential part of of it that is happening now is through means of grace. That's just the processes or the things that God uses out of his goodness to help us. The once for all status of believers is that we have been sanctified. We are transformed as we believe God's promises and participate in his ordained means. Meaning that you and I will continue to be transformed more and more as we appropriate the means that God has given to us, which is the study and the reading of his word, fellowship with, worshiping with believers, and being involved in prayer with our Savior. How do we know this? Because sanctification is true for all believers, and future glorification is promised to all believers, as we just read in Romans 8. And so the means of grace must be, and is, and are accessible to all believers in all places at all times. 
There is no special secret to how God works to transform us. As the church was born on the day of Pentecost, those who believed were baptized and they gathered in this manner. Acts chapter 2. They were continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Wayne Mack says this, To gather under these God-ordained means is done in faith. There is no reason to believe that these simple practices would change anyone had God not ordained these practices and given promises with them. Remember John 17, God sanctifies us by his word. It is his word that sanctifies us. When you and I practice the Lord's Supper, we show that we believe his promises to be with us and that he will come again so that we may eat with him in the kingdom of God. We remember his death until he comes, therefore showing faith in the ground of our sanctification, which once again is his once for all shed blood. We pray because he promised that he hears us and gives us grace and timely help because of the work of Christ. Anyone can participate in these means, and they must always be accessible to all who are not under church discipline. The false teachings we've looked at claim some special elite status that only some can participate in. They are for those who know the secret or who have obtained a higher order of spirituality. They are based on the knowledge of secrets that are not clearly taught in the Bible, and they are certainly inaccessible. The true means of grace are accessible to all of God's elect. Participating shows that we do believe the promises of God. Fellowship shows that we need one another, care for one another, and pray for one another. God graciously changes us as we gather in obedience. So again, the question Why do people run to so many false teachings when the truth is so simple? It's a failure of faith. This failure happens when the feelings and circumstances of life create doubts that God is going to finish his work and bring us all the way to glory. We're going to have doubts. The flesh is weak. What do we do? We don't go looking for another experience. We take advantage of these things that God has given to us because we believe what God says. That's the exercise of faith. Do we believe that God hears us and will give us everything we need? When you read Hebrews 11, it's about believing God's promises in the face of trials and obstacles. We need to believe God's promises and not turn back. We are not lacking anything that pertains to life and godliness, and you'll find that in 2 Peter We must believe God's promises and not falter in our faith because of the inevitable trials that are coming our way. So our prayer is that God would give each of us the courage to believe his promises and to stay solid in that faith in the face of so many false teachings that would draw us aside. And when you hold on to that, then this idea that Paul now is going to deal with That somehow what we need to do is we need to, when we run down the Kroger and we see the section of fruits and vegetables that were offered to Buddha, and I say, well, I'm not buying that because I, you know, that somehow that's going to make me more spiritual. That just seems silly now, doesn't it? Because it is. And then to, to, to maybe camp out the store and to watch and see who would dare buy those things and say, aha, that just seems dumb, doesn't it? It's just so empty. And, what we, and yet too often what happens is we do the same thing ourselves. And so we need to repent of that. Ask God to forgive us for not believing his simple promises and for not taking advantage of the simple means of grace that are there for all of us to partake and participate in so that we all can be freed 
from our past and be freed from being caught up in these false teachings and live and live in the joy of Christ and the finished work of Christ because I know what I possess now and I know where I'm going. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your goodness and your grace and your kindness and your word. Father, we thank you that we can declare as believers, though we know that we sin. In fact, many of us had to confess sins this morning. We know that we sin, and yet we can declare with boldness that we belong to Christ. And that we've been adopted by him. And there is no room for doubt, because it's based not on our feeling, not on our obedience, not on on how we live or think, but on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And Father, we are so grateful for that. Yes, Lord, we know that because of our sinfulness, there is a danger that lurks in the truth of God that we might then take it lightly and begin to take our own sin lightly. We pray that you would prevent that from ever happening in us. Father, we know that that will not happen all that often if we once again take advantage of fellowshipping and worshiping with believers, spending time with you in prayer, reading and studying your word. Because we know, Lord, you've given us these simple things to cause us to grow, to mature, to become stronger in our understanding and knowledge, that we may be more like your son, Jesus Christ, so that we would always see sin as being a serious issue, always desire a holiness, and have a great willingness to serve others for the cause of the kingdom. And Father, for those of us who have recognized which is true probably for all of us, that we have failed from time to time, we ask that you would forgive us, Father, and ask that we repent of our laziness or whatever it is that's getting in the way, that we may together move forward in being transformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that for those who may be weak emotionally or mentally, who are beset by sins that seem to overpower them and overpower their thoughts, we pray, Lord, that as they look to Christ, they will find deliverance and freedom and comfort because it's all about you and it's all about what you've done. And for all of us, we stand firm on that and that alone. We thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.